Welcome to the Complete Manager Makeover Podcast, a management training and leadership development platform focused on providing managers and business owners with practical compliance and employee relations tips, tools, and techniques for every stage of their career or business. Our mission is to slash the statistic that employees don't quit their jobs, they quit their bad managers. Not anymore, because we are transforming the human and human resources with the Complete Manager Makeover. So today we're going to talk about how to confidently give feedback and conduct performance improvement discussions. So the first thing that we want to really focus on is ensuring that there is a difference between what coaching is and what discipline is. What are some of the favorite coaches? It might have been a coach that you had in school. It might be a world-known coach. Some of the great coaches that come to mind when you think about coaching. I think we know a lot of different coaches that are out there, certainly lots of great known football coaches. Maybe you had a favorite coach in high school or in your college years, or even a great teacher, absolutely, that was great and coached students along the way. It's important to understand that coaching is a process. It's a process that we have. I mean, Don Shula comes to mind, right? one of the greatest writing amazing books, definitely some great coaches out there, especially in the NFL. When we think about coaching, we want to remember that how and why we coach is an important distinction. And I want to ask you, why don't employees do what they are supposed to do? What are some of the reasons you can think of that they don't do what they're supposed to do. I can think of one, maybe they don't think that your way is better. What are some of the things? Absolutely, they're not motivated to do it. What are some of the other things that you can think of that make them not wanna do what it is that they're doing? Not motivated, they may not think it'll work, they're lazy, absolutely. Of the many, many reasons why lack of training is definitely a big reason why associates or employees don't do what they're supposed to do. And of all the things, especially lack of communication and lack of training, they don't think it'll work. There's not enough time for them to do it all. Of all the things that are listed in the various reasons why, right? They don't know that they're supposed to do it, lack of training. I don't know how to do it. Again, lack of training. Of all of the reasons why employees don't do the things that they're supposed to do, the one thing that is beyond our control, and I think it's an important thing, is that they are personally incapable of doing it. There are some things that are truly beyond someone's control, no matter how much training. And then, of course, the second one is personal problems. We as managers, we can fix lack of training. We can fix that there are obstacles. We can fix that they think that their way is better by showing them how the way we do things works for us. But when it comes to ensuring that we're giving that, This is where coaching really has the best impact. We want to make sure that coaching is where learning and development occurs. It facilitates thinking. It helps an employee think about what could you be doing 
differently than what they're doing. It's coaching is that one-on-one conversation. It's just a matter of fact opportunity where we engage with our employees and say, hey, you know, I noticed this occurred. You might want to consider doing it this way or have you ever considered doing it this way or this is the way we would prefer that you do it. And then always ensure that you provide the why. I think we tend to forget that as adult learners, it's important that employees know why it is they're doing something. What is the bigger picture that is important for them to know? Because that helps get that buy-in. And remembering that coaching is really just that one-on-one kind of casual conversation that can help to motivate employees, guide them in the right direction, and specifically make sure that they're being guided towards the right goal. You know, coaching is not correcting behavior. It's that gentle nudge in terms of how we go about directing the behavior. It's not telling someone how to do something. That might be a training opportunity, not a coaching opportunity. So it's important to make this distinction that the first level of communication, the first level of feedback that we provide to our employees really is in a coaching type of mode. So let's talk a little bit about hesitant coaches. What do you think are some of the reasons why we avoid coaching or avoid providing feedback? What are some of the things that you can think of that might make us a little bit hesitant? What are some of the thoughts that you have there? Yes, shy definitely might be a reason why we fail to coach. Maybe I know, you know, some individuals, uh, they fear offending an employee. In a recent survey, some of the reasons why we're, we don't have the time or we don't think we have the time or we may lack the time, particularly when we're short staffed or we don't make the time. Maybe confrontation is not in our wheelhouse. We don't prefer that confrontational opportunity. We do have behavioral traits within ourselves as humans that say we either are okay with healthy confrontation or we tend to shy away from it. But I encourage you, if you are the type that prefers not to have confrontation because you don't want to break relationship, you don't want to break rapport, confrontation in a healthy manner can actually be an opportunity to create a better connection and better rapport with that person, especially when you go into that confrontation or that conversation in a healthy manner. Maybe it's uh, uncertainty of how are we supposed to coach? And that's why we're here today is to kind of cover some of that because we don't want to offend somebody by saying the wrong thing, or we fear will fail at the coaching process. And the only type of failure that you might experience is a failure to coach in and of itself. So that's certainly an important thing that you wanna make that distinction because as important as coaching is, it's even more so to go into that conversation. We want to make sure that we go ahead and have that coaching conversation because the only way we can fail is to not have that coaching discussion. And that's why we're here today is to learn a little bit about how we go about doing that. So effective communication is what is important when ensuring that we're going into a coaching conversation or a disciplinary conversation. And it clearly has some benefits 
In coaching, we want to remember that effective communication really does have three parts. And those three parts are the words that we use, the tone and inflection of our voice, and then our body language. Believe it or not, we speak to the world without saying even a word. We want to be very aware of our body language because believe it or not, words, body language, and tone they all work together to create communication. So here's an example. If I say, hey, Joe, you look rather great today. It's very matter of fact. It's very complimentary. But if I say, hey, Joe, you look great today. That tone changes the entire message. So we want to be cautious about that because when you break down your communication, words that you use are 7%, give or take, of the communication. I could say the very same thing, changing my body language and my tone and completely changing the message. Here's another example. Would you please close that door? That's not the best tone to give an instruction. But if I say, could you please close that door? It changes the message entirely. Absolutely. In that first example, I'm quite annoyed. In the second, I'm quite calm. We want to remember these things, especially when coaching, counseling, and disciplining our employees. Now, believe it or not, the words are only 7%, but the tone is 38% of the message. How you change the words, how you change the tone changes the words. And finally, body language communicates 55% of that message. So keep those things in mind. Words are only 7% as I showed you in those examples. 38% is tone, and then the larger portion of communication is 55%. So keep those things in mind when communicating with your employees. It has a big impact on how the message is received. And just for those who might be interested, that information was actually research conducted way back in 1971, who is currently the professor emeritus of psychology at UCLA. So definitely something to consider, particularly to keep in mind when we go into coaching, counseling, and disciplinary conversations. So let's transition a little bit into a sample of a progressive discipline policy. And this is certainly one that we ensure use of when working with various clients. It's ensuring that we have a policy in place that can speak to any organization, provide a structure and ensure effective progressive discipline. Well, what do I mean by progressive discipline? Progressive discipline really ensures that we have an opportunity to take a stair-step approach to complying, to ensuring that we're giving employees feedback to comply with our policies, procedures, regulations, and expectations. And so when we look at progressive discipline, we find that there are layers and levels of discipline, or what I like to call 
corrective action. We really are looking to correct the performance. And progressive discipline can include coaching as that first level, counseling, which gets a little bit more in depth, verbal warnings, written warnings, suspension, and then sometimes a last chance agreement. Okay, so those could be the various levels of discipline. And so when we look at that coaching, what is coaching? Coaching is an oral, interactive, almost training process. It tends to be verbal in nature and ongoing and unlimited. You could coach your employees just like that favorite coach that we talked about earlier might do along the entire employee life cycle, the entire time that you have an employee. When it comes to counseling, while it is also interactive, it's oral in nature, it certainly can be a written, but it tends to be verbal in nature. We want to make sure that if your policy calls for it to be written, that you certainly include that as well. In addition to that, an associate might have a conflict with a peer. This is an opportunity for counseling, taking the two employees, whether together or separate, depending on the situation, and finding out a little bit about what's going on with that situation, giving them a little bit of guidance and feedback. And yes, it is an ongoing thing all the time. It may be an opportunity to utilize when there's persistent performance problems, but nothing that rises to the level of requiring a written warning. We're trying to correct the behavior without resorting to a written format. Not that that's necessarily wrong. We'll talk about when those things are appropriate. Maybe with counseling, an employee has uh, job-related behavior problems. Maybe they've been late twice this week and we don't want it to get to the level of that third one where we need to do uh, some written counseling, written warnings, written corrective action. And so we want to come alongside and say, hey, Joe, I noticed that you were late twice this week. You know, we don't want it to progress to the level of excessive. Is there anything going on? Just come alongside our employees and our associates to kind of find out and make sure that we can help guide them in their roles and responsibilities and remind them of the expectations. Maybe an employee is new to the group or the department and they're not quite fitting in and you want to give them a little bit of guidance and counseling on what things they might be doing or they could be doing differently, I like to say, that can help acclimate them to the group or the department. And maybe the employee lacks self-confidence in their workday. Maybe they're a little bit shy or introverted because they're new to the organization. These are areas where counseling can help as well. And then there's the verbal warning. Verbal warnings can be documented. They are an opportunity for us to say, okay, you know, we've chatted about this. And as supervisors, it's okay to kind of keep a record of when we're coaching, you know, maybe not so much coaching, but having conversations 
counseling conversations to guide the performance, because often we might need that information and we might want to include those opportunities that we've had previously into written documentation when necessary. And so that verbal warning, you know, it's not excessive enough to get into a written warning situation, like maybe a no call, no show to work might be. The employee's not called. They've not come into work. We don't know where they are. They were expected at eight o'clock in the morning. Here it is nine o'clock they're still not here. That might raise to the occasion of a written warning situation, but it's not quite that level. So we may resort to a verbal warning uh, depending on that. And I think I've got a few examples of each. And then we have a first written warning. Here is where the most common, you know, three strikes you're out type rule exists. These are incidences in your workplace that rise to the level of a written warning. These are actions or behaviors or infractions of policy, failure to abide by a policy that do raise to the level of a written warning. What could some of those things be? That could be, like I mentioned before, a no call, no show, maybe someone leaving home with the company car keys, things of that nature that really cannot be left to coaching or counseling. And then we have our three infractions. These happen when you have three incidences that do raise to the level of a written warning. We can't just say, oh, yeah, I'll just talk to them about it. It's that serious. And so maybe in a manufacturing environment, maybe it's failing to lock out a machine that could cause injury. Maybe in a safety and security, it's leaving the post without being covered, things of that nature. All of these things raised to the level of that written warning, that corrective action conversation. And then oftentimes when we get to that third written warning, depending on what that history has been, depending on what the employee's history of corrective action and coaching and counseling, it may even warrant a suspension. I always recommend to my clients that we never have an opportunity or that we never give our supervisors or our managers the authority, if you will, to immediately terminate anyone. We always want to provide an opportunity for us to review the information, review the employee's work history in its entirety, and then make a decision based on that history. Sometimes it does result in separating from employment. And in a situation where a suspension occurs, we want to make sure that, again, we look at the previous discipline, how severe were the infractions? Do we want to maintain this person in our organization? Is there significant damage to property? Is there a safety violation? Has there been violence in the workplace? All of these things are considered when deciding whether to continue someone's employment or decide it's best to part company. Suspensions, it's always recommended that they are no longer than three days. In three days, it should be enough time to 
pull the file, review the information. If it's a situation where witnesses need to be talked to, that we have to investigate something. If there's fight on property or on duty, uh, violence in the workplace, act a harassment issue, that we have those three days to gather all the information, investigate whatever might need to be investigated to make the right decision as a company or an organization. But our supervisors and managers should always know what the progressive discipline of their employees are so that when there is that third infraction, when there is something that raises to the level of that suspension, they can immediately, as a supervisor or manager, feel confident in knowing this is a situation that rises to another warning. There are two or three already on file. I need to suspend this employee, um, you know, cover their shifts, things of that nature, and then go ahead and have a conversation with human resources, your office manager, your general manager, whoever is in the position to review that with ownership or leadership and make that final determination in terms of employment. Now, sometimes there is a situation where you may have an opportunity, you know, you do want to bring this employee back. There's mitigating circumstances. There's outstanding information that we maybe have come to be aware of as a result of an investigation. And we may want to consider a last chance agreement. This is that one foot in, one foot out kind of conversation that says, you know, we do have enough information to separate you from employment. However, because of whatever the mitigating circumstances are, we have chosen to give you one last chance. And these should be used far and few between very unique situations, but definitely one that can be considered when mitigating circumstances, when there's something there that we're just not sure about exists in an employment history. So let's talk a little bit about the levels of offenses. Now, what we're gonna cover here are examples. Each organization, every employer has different levels of what they might consider minor, intermediate or major infractions, minor being those coaching and counseling conversations. Intermediate might be those uh, verbal warning opportunities and major being those, you know, kind of written warning. Let's do some corrective action. I want you to know that this is something that's important and serious. So minor and intermediate major tend to be those categories. And a minor infraction could be considered major one based on the circumstance. We want to consider that one point might be minor could raise to the level of major. And I'll give you an example of that here in a moment. Always consult with your office manager, your HR rep, your leadership, if you have a question how to rate the level of the offense. But here are some examples of a minor infraction. Failing to attend a scheduled meeting. Maybe it wasn't mandatory, it was recommended, and we can coach and counsel that employee and say, you know, these meetings, they might not be mandatory, but they're very important so that you can be part of the team, understand what the organization is doing, things of that nature. Maybe an employee is loitering or staying on property or at the locations during uh, non-working hours. Maybe they're leaving the assigned working area during working hours without permission. That would, in some ways, in the security environment, that's a major infraction. If you're at a front desk or at a receptionist office and the phones are ringing off the hook and you've walked away you know, without a backup to the phones, that might be minor. So you want to make sure that you're 
organization has an outline or a general guideline of what minor means for you guys and what major might be. Now, we can't consider everything. Certainly, there's no way to include everything, but certainly have an idea of what things are considered major and minor. And that's why the employee handbook is so important. Maybe neglecting or mishandling equipment or supplies on the workforce. Maybe, you know, it might be one thing if I accidentally drop my laptop and cause some damage. It might be a whole nother story if I crash a company vehicle. Do you see how that makes sense? There are different things based on the industry and exactly that could be major in one industry. And that's why it's so important to have these conversations with your supervisors so that you know what is considered minor, intermediate, and major, because it can certainly be industry specific. Walking away from your post in security is a major infraction. Walking away from the front desk and not having phones covered because I didn't call my supervisor and say, hey, can you cover the phones? I'm leaving might be minor in, in different industries. So definitely want to have that. And then, of course, you know, unsatisfactory work or attitude might be a minor infraction that we can coach, that we can counsel uh, before it gets and raises to the level of an intermediate or a major infraction. What could be some examples of intermediate infractions? And again, these are just examples. There is opportunity to ensure that your organizations define what those things are. But some immediate infractions, again, at some locations, leaving the premises without the permission of a supervisor's two days of absence, you know, within a 30 day period or whatever your attendance policy is. We used to say two and 33 and 90, two unexcused absences or latenesses or what have you in a 30 day period or three in a 90 day period. We've seen a lot of flexibility all over the place. Again, important to have your employee handbook written so that your supervisors know what are the policies they are required to enforce and coach upon and uh, advise employees of uh, so that there's consistency. That is critical when coaching, counseling, and disciplining. We want to make sure that what we do with one, with what we hold accountable with one, we do that across the board. Another intermediate infraction could be violation of no solicitation and no distribution in your workplace. Maybe failure to report off from work in a current with a policy. They no call, no showed, or they're supposed to call two hours before the shift and they called five minutes before they were supposed to show up. That might be intermediate or even a major, again, very industry specific. What are some major infractions that are considered definitely something that you want to go directly to corrective action and may even rise to the level of a suspension pending investigation for separation from employment? Maybe deliberately making false record, falsification of a time card. Those might be major that go right to potential suspension. Uh, forget the intermediate. You know, an intermediate would definitely be written warning kind of status. Now, major infractions might be something where we are suspending immediately pending an investigation. So violence in the workplace, causing bodily injury, insubordination. And I want to stop here, especially because we're talking specifically to supervisors and managers today. Insubordination doesn't necessarily mean they didn't do what you asked, okay? Insubordination can be considered insubordination when... One, an employee 
fails to complete a reasonable assignment that is not one that is going to hinder their safety in any way, that's not going to be illegal in any way, okay? Not a safety infraction, nothing that you're asking them to be illegal, and one that is a reasonable request. So we've made the request. It's not a safety issue. It's not a health issue. It's not illegal. They fail to comply, and then you advise them, okay, that failure to do this behavior, action, whatever the work required thing is, would result in suspension as a result of insubordination. So we need to make sure these two things are there before we just say, oh, they were, you know, I'm writing them up and suspending them for insubordination. Have they been advised that their failure to comply with your reasonable job request is rising to the level of insubordination if they fail to carry out the request. That's an important piece because then if they fail to do it, if they refuse to do it, then we have a situation that rises to the occasion of what we consider insubordination, okay? Uh, So what are some other major infractions? Theft on the property, reporting to work under the influence. And that's a whole other topic of conversation and training because if you are a drug-free workplace, there are Definitely some things that must be in place in your organization to ensure that we're in compliance with a drug-free workplace and that we've provided training to our supervisors of what to look for and recognize when reporting that someone's under the influence. There's a lot of behavioral things that need to be looked at and documented if you are a true drug-free workplace. And remember, if you are a true drug-free workplace, that can help you with a 5% reduction in your insurance costs and your workers' comp insurance in most states. Some states might be more. And then, you know, maybe there's a violation of a safety rule, sleeping on duty. This is a major infraction in any industry. We're not having employees come to work and they're sleeping on the job. That is an immediate major infraction. And we want to make sure that we are handling it accordingly. Obviously, possession of a firearm or illegal weapon on premises unless given the authorization to do so. Many of my clients do have individuals in their workplaces that are licensed to carry weapons and have the authority to do so. Otherwise, that might be a major infraction in the workplace. Well, that's our show today. Thanks for listening to The Complete Manager Makeover. I'm Lisa Perez. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more about our community, For training resources, search for us on the web, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at The Complete Manager Makeover, where I invite you to become part of our community. Please leave us a review and share our movement to transform the human in human resources with The Complete Manager Makeover.